Hello and welcome to Safe and Sound, a podcast by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland exploring the world of human factors in healthcare and patient safety. Each episode we will try to untangle different aspects of this complicated web of human factors in healthcare through interviews with some extraordinary guests and faculty in Ireland and across the world. We have the pleasure of being joined here today by Professor Ian Robertson, neuroscientist and clinical psychologist, co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute and Emeritus Professor in Psychology at Trinity College Dublin, and one of the world's leading researchers in neuropsychology. Professor Robertson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. So I really, I guess we want to start by just asking a relatively subjective question, and everyone kind of has a different answer to this, but... I suppose in many ways, what does human factors mean to you? Human factors? Yeah. It's, well, uh, it's, I, I guess it's human behavior and its interaction with systems and machines mm-hmm. and, the, and the complexities of and sometimes un, apart and unpredictability of human responses um, to, to, to systems or machines. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I suppose just, just getting a bit of your own background, I mean, can you tell me a bit about your own background and training and how you became involved in neuropsychology? Sure. I, I, um, well, I trained as a did a degree in psychology and then traveled a bit and then did a training in clinical psychology at the Maudsley in London and then worked for a number of years as a clinical psychologist and then did my PhD in my 30s and then was lucky enough to... So what happened when I was doing clinical psychology was I got frustrated at the way that the practice, the clinical practice was becoming disconnected from the science. I didn't didn't feel it was, you know, it it was developing because of scientific discoveries about the mind or brain but rather had its own kind of clinical momentum. And I got frustrated. So I decided to do a PhD in, but this time I was working in brain rehabilitation. Right. I discovered that there was no underlying theory of what all the rehabilitationists were doing. There was no underlying theory by physiotherapists, by rehabilitation physicians. They they didn't have a model of what they were doing. They were just doing this stuff. It was entirely based on, if you like, folk wisdom. And that's been true. You know, how, that's how medicine started, but medicine integrated with science uh, rapidly, particularly in the 20th century. But um, in, 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 in these areas like rehabilitation and psychotherapy and things like that, they haven't done what the rest of medicine has done. So I, I ended up going to Cambridge to the MRC, having got my PhD and working on developing the principles of brain plasticity as applied, clinically applied, if you like. Wow, amazing! So it sounds like in many ways you are trying to, trying to marry up the science with the psychology and the conditions that were there, and and trying to look at the neurochemistry behind it. Yes, uh, yes, and, and or to look how high level how how psychology influences the neurochemistry. <laughs> you know, we we you know we live in a, a reductionist world where we tend to assume that. Smaller is better, <laughs> and uh, you know, as uh, who was it? Uh, Watson said, you know, everything is everything is physics. All the rest is social work. <laughs> However, 
However, so imagine saying saying that to a molecular biologist, you say, oh, everything is physics, you know, applied to molecular biology. So, you know, so there's this kind of levels of analysis of, of, of systems of human health and human behavior. And the assumption has been that it's bottom-up causation. Right. <laughs> but that's a reductionist fallacy. It's actually bi-directional. And high, as we well know, high-level psychological and social factors, indeed, can shape and influence even the expression of genes. Uh, but, but we're trapped in a, a kind of what I call the curse of genetic fatalism. Um, and, and so, so I'm, you know, regard. And my my passion, I think, is to is to find links between the the psychological factors of the mind and the underlying factors of, of the brain, and to, to to harness that understanding to get better interventions. And I suppose you 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 had previously suggested that in in many ways that we might actually have more control over our brain function than. We realized, and you've kind of alluded to that there as well, and, and that, you know, we could potentially alter structure, function, chemistry through our behavior, our breathing, our thinking. Uh, just tell me a little bit about how that might work, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, the brains of long-term meditators are completely different, for, right. for example, from the brains of people who haven't engaged in long-term meditation. The, the, brains, the brains of people who are well-educated um, particularly the left temporal cortex are completely different from the, the, the brains of people who are illiterate. <laughs> um, so the, 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 the dominating factor of, of human behavior is not, if you like, the, the genetic immutability and genetic determination of complex patterns of human behavior, but rather it's the fact that we only have 20,000 genes mm-hmm. And these genes evolved for us to adapt and to be, and for our brains to plastically reorganize in relation to our environments. So it's the defining factor of the human brain is its plasticity, not its immutability or its, you know, the genetic determinants of it, which is one reason why I'm concerned with the, the current kind of trend of, of mass diagnosis where almost everyone in the world now has a, a new neurodiversity diagnosis. Yes, yes, yes. yes. These, these diagnoses, this medicalization of human behavior, I think is, doesn't accurately represent A, the continuum, the fact that most human propensities are continuum, not discrete. You have the illness or you don't. And also they, 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 they minimize the fact, the degree to which so much of this stuff is learned and yes. can be unlearned. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny, I, I, so I, you know, my, my day job is usually as a pediatric urologist, and I see that all the time when it comes to toileting. Um, you know, you can learn and unlearn the stuff and your brain can have an effect on the bladder and vice versa. Um, and, and I suppose you've, you've, you've published a number of books and, you know, I've had the pleasure of reading a couple of them and, and we often quote your, uh, your stress test book during, uh, during our day on, uh, on uh, stress cha- uh, training in the RCSI. Uh, but you also delivered the Carmichael lecture um, on the ear of the mind and you had suggested um, that in fact confidence will play a f- crucial role in future challenges and, and you've written a book on this, How Confidence yeah. Works. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean by how confidence will, 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 play a role in future challenges? 
Absolutely. Um, so the defining, I think the defining um, capacity of the human brain, evolved capacity, is the ability to envisage states of the world that don't exist at the moment and to work towards creating them. No other species does that um, in any significant way. And uh, so, and that is the basis of our civilization. Uh, all medical advances, all um, cultural advances are because people have said, what if? And because the future is never 100% certain. Mm -hmm. And the human brain is evolved as a prediction machine and uncertainty is, can be anxiety arousing. And so yeah. there is this ability to, for people, for instance, the wonderful woman who got the Nobel Prize for the mRNA work, yeah. my goodness, she, the, the terrible anxiety arousing obstacles, she, including threats of redundancy, she had to pursue this idea to create this thing that didn't before. It was just magnificent. Um, but uh, to do that, she had to, to, to master and take action into the future in spite of anxiety and in spite of uncertainty. Yeah. She could easily, but not, that might not have worked. But the whole point of confidence is it's, it's our ability to tolerate anxiety and to tolerate uncertainty in saying, making a bet towards the future. It's essentially a bet that I can do this and that if I can do it, that X, Y, and Z will follow. That's the, uh, the you know, can do and can happen. And that, that the wonderful thing, about, uh, and that is in spite of the anxiety, which tends to make us retreat and avoid. That's, that's the, the part of the, the kind of basic primitive neuropsychology of the human brain, that, competition between challenge, anticipating reward, and, 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 and threat, and anticipating punishment. And what confidence does is it just gives an edge to the anticipating reward, in spite of the fact that the, 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 the anxiety networks of the brain are going, oh my god, what if, what if, this could happen, you might humiliate it, there might be a failure. And the, the wonderful thing about confidence is it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, because because your brain anticipates that you're going to be able to do that and that a good outcome will follow, the reward system gets activated as if you've actually done it. And that has four effects. A really important one is it's an anxiolytic, makes you feel less anxious. Yeah. Second one, it raises your mood, makes you less depressed. Third one is it makes you activates your action systems of your brain and makes it more likely you will take that step forward. And as Rumi, the Afghanistani poet, said, the road only appears in the first step. If you don't take the first step, there's no chance of finding the road. And the fourth one is, makes you a little bit smarter because of the innovation of the prefrontal cortex with dopamine networks, which the reward system and, uh, stimulates. So you've got this that's why every soccer manager, every rugby team manager, they're all confidence, confidence, all you ever hear is confidence. And they're right. It is the critical uh, individual uh, capacity of the human brain, but collectively, together, when a group of people are collected, wow, that has enormous, enormous potential to create realities that don't yet exist. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds of... It as if in many ways you're you're trying to just reframe how you see the world and reframe how you think about things and 
you know, I mean, if I bring this back to maybe, say, healthcare in a, in a, in a system that's particularly challenged, um, you know, are we talking about trying to simply deal with difficult situations by, by reframing how we see them? And I suppose in a way, coming back to fight another day is not necessarily the worst thing in the world and could, in theory, protect against things like burnout. But Or do you think we're just, by continuously doing that, are we kind of slowly depleting reserves uh, and and can this or can this you know by reframing things can that actually affect change? Well, uh, yes, reframing, uh, you know, seeing you know you you work you perhaps work in a, an imperfect system. Yeah. Where where if this you know the system is not working well and you're frustrated that you can't provide the optimal care, it's not the optimal working environment that you ideally would design if you could, um, but. There's, so there's a couple of approaches to that. One is for you to say, well, what is there one thing about this system that is within my power to influence to try and make a small change to make that system better? That then becomes a goal for you. The critical thing about confidence is it's very, it's not a general thing like self-esteem. It's action-specific and domain-specific. So if I'm working in a poor system I, I I may decide actually to for me to do my job better I need to try and make one, one small change system which is much harder than making one small change in my own behavior but then that then requires me to make set a goal for myself and uh, goals goals have sweet spots just like the chemical messengers in our brains they have too, too easy and too hard and and, and they don't work. There's a, a sweet spot for goals that just stretches a bit, but they're not too difficult, so they're actually achievable, yeah. so confidence can work. And if you can chip away and, and set yourself the challenge, okay, I'm going to see if I can make some ch ch change, tiny change to this system towards a longer-term goal. If you define that goal clearly enough and you achieve it, you'll get a reward feeling in your brain with the lowered anxiety, increased mood, increased propensity for action, the wee bit smarter. That is that's a perfect set of antidotes to burnout, yeah. and demoralization, and a sense of futility. However, there's sometimes you may think, look, I'm not wasting my time. I, I don't have the skills or the interest in changing the system. I'm just going to do my best within the system that I have, and therefore I, I am going to, to 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 set goals to do with me achieving in spite of the adversity of a poorly functioning system um, and getting satisfaction from achieving my own goals in spite of that adversity. Framed like that, then that again gives you these success experiences. Okay, it's all a mess in here. I did a really good job there. I set that goal. So you have to, you have to chunk your time. You have to know what goals you're achieving you must try and avoid multitasking, hard for people in the health center. Try and avoid multitasking, even if it's for a minute or two. Be clear what it is you're doing for that minute and realize that your brain will become exhausted if it's constantly switching between tasks. Because you can multitask, what you're doing is doing repeated switching. That is metabolically expensive. That is exhausting. Right. That is a source of fatigue. That is a source of burnout. Right. So you have to learn to be absolutely all about your attention. 
okay, this is what, I, I don't care if there's chaos around me, I'm focusing on this one procedure with this one patient, and I'm going to get satisfaction from doing that. And I'm going to know whether I've done it or not. And that requires you to funnel your attention on that. And, and you, you also have to give yourself breaks. Even if it's 30 seconds between procedures, even if you're just standing there in your scrubs or whatever, and just, just breathe. Breathe in for four and out for six. Reset. Literal resetting of the noradrenergic system of the brain because the locus ceruleus is chemosensitive. Um, you, you can, so, and again, these mini brain breaks, and then if you have time, five minutes, don't always be on, don't be going straight onto Facebook or Twitter, you know, when you've got a five minute break, just give your brain a chance doing nothing, or a walk, or a stretch, or listen to some music, yeah, but don't be kind of always going from one task to another. You will reduce your chances of burnout if you, if you take these steps. I, I suppose there's been a lot that's gone on over, over, the, over the last kind of three or nearly four years now uh, with, with COVID. And I mean, did you mentioned things like, I mean, you mentioned your, your uh, divergence earlier on, but I mean, with COVID coming along, I mean, w- was it fairly evident that there were spikes in cases of stress, anxiety and depression? Have they settled down or coming back to what you were saying earlier on, do you think there's this kind of background raised level of stress and anxiety in our community now waiting for the next population health disaster? It's funny enough, actually the evidence is, is not... I remember on, in, in 20, was it 2022, January 22 or 21, I can't remember, whenever the restrictions were lifted in Ireland and there was a, a, a regular behavioural survey that was being done in Ireland at the time, and there was a, when, when the restrictions were completely lifted, there was a slight, a slight significant drop in well-being, <laughs> average, average well-being in the population. Right. Because actually, there, was a, there were winners and losers from COVID. There were people who actually felt liberated from the complexities of life, the demands. They felt life was simpler. They could focus on things that were important in relationships. There were the losers. My own brother in his 80s, living on his own, he was a loser, now he's recovered, but it was a tough, tough time for him. There were kids, kids kids just about to go to university, maybe a bit shy, and who, 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 who didn't get that opportunity of being forced to socialise and, and maybe a bit delayed. So there were losers and winners from COVID. On average, actually, the suicide rates, as far as we know, didn't go up. Um, you know, as a result of COVID, so we're enormously adaptable, and, and so I think I think you could I think you could really uh, you could exaggerate. It's probably the, the degree of mental health problems arising from COVID are probably have been exaggerated. Okay, but probably there certainly are some, but it's not. There's it many people who really actually really wished. Of nostalgia for the, the greater simplicity of life under 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 the conditions of COVID. Interesting. I suppose you know over your last few decades of of seminal research. I mean, you, you must have seen huge shifts in 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 what was being discovered, and, and and I suppose paradigm shifts in many ways. But I suppose <laughs> gazing into your crystal ball, where do you see this going in the next, I suppose, ten fifteen years? 
Well, um, clearly we've got amazing, just not in my own field, but the, the, the CRISPR genetic technologies, one thing, and artificial intelligence is the other. And these two, te these two technologies are just are going to accelerate change, both in the life sciences and in every other domain of, of life, exponentially. So the change is going to become changing. So, um, it, 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 so people are going to feel potentially because our brain works as a prediction machine. That's the way it works. You know, perceptually, motorically. We, we, that's why when we step onto an escalator which isn't moving, we kind of lurch because that's our brain right, yeah. has, predicted, has predicted the response and that prediction was wrong and that gives an error signal on that. So we're going to be full of that kind of error signal in life. You know, you know the, the, cer the certainties are gone and, and that is going to make our almost the number one uh, capacity in the school curriculum in life is to is, is to become adept at understanding your own mental and brain processes and feeling in control of it. Because the one, the one, you know, confidence gives you a sense of control. And when you have a sense of control, you can break some of these awful links between, for instance, socioeconomic status and ill health. These get broken um, or, or greatly reduced in people who have a sense of control. So we have to to give people a sense of control, a sense of the, their pilots of their own brains, so that they can then benefit from the fact that even though they would have poor education, they can now write a brilliant analysis or letter using ChatGPT. So it's going to mm -hmm. democratize. It's terrible. In some ways, it's terrible for the privileged middle classes who have made who have made a really good living out of verbal skills that we've learned in good schools. Yeah. But now, you know, a villager in Kenya is going to be able to, to write that, you know, that, that, that analysis of the data that, that previously you were paid as a consultant, you know, a lot of money to do. So, 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 so the collective intelligence of humanity, I think, is going to, to rise with their capacity, and which is great, but for, for the individuals, we, I mean, we're going to have to have a universal minimum wage, we're going to have to find ways of redistributing the increasingly concentrated wealth that these, these advances will produce. And, and the challenges for individuals are really, it's about, it's about how, how to make people feel, not feel helpless and diminished in the yeah. face of these changes. I suppose just coming on to the the, the last question here is, is something something I usually ask uh, in, in these uh, in these podcasts, but if you could change one thing about your professional career uh, to date, what, what do you think that might be? And and if you had to give one piece of advice to um, trainee healthcare professionals, what would that be? I, I, I think my one piece of advice, I don't, don't, don't exaggerate, don't falsely attribute uh, problems to fatalistic causes of, you know, this is, realize that everything, almost, including some quite basic physiological systems, are, are shaped by conditioning and learning, and, and, and realize that, uh, you know, physiotherapist is, is, you know, in some ways as much a neurosurgeon as the neurosurgeon, 
and 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 uh, try and and keep learning, try and try and try and inform your practice with the science. Keep reading, keep learning, keep going to training courses. Try not to get stuck in a clinical bubble where you 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 start to develop the and you know the, and this happened partly to me. You 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 become so sure of your own skills that you become kind of isolated and you don't question, you don't see other possibilities. So in-service training, further training, learning, that, that also is a great anti-burnout, is, is that sense of you're, you're, you're not just getting bored because I just do all this sort of stuff, even though you've done the same procedure a hundred times, my goodness, look at the literature, maybe there's some, someone somewhere has done something, what if I tried that, and suddenly, you know, that becomes, you know, there's a freshness in what you're doing. Amazing. Amazing. Professor Ian Robertson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been so refreshing and it's so great to uh, be able to speak to you in person. Thank you very much, Father. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the show. As always, we need to thank our guests for their generous time, as well as our marketing, production and technical support team. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review and follow us on social media. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode, and as ever, stay safe and sound.